Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are continuing in part six of this seven-part series, and we are looking at the seven nations that Israel had to conquer in order to take full possession of the promised land. And, you know, I was just thinking as we were opening in prayer tonight, um, what amazing wisdom God has given to man to develop all of these technological tools that uh, we take for granted. But I was thinking not too many years ago, the concept of being able to send a picture by your telephone or being able to all join together in a Bible study like this on the telephone. It's amazing these advances that we have made. And thank God we're using them for the right purpose, to spread the gospel, to have fellowship together, and to worship the Lord. So once again, welcome all of you that are on the phone lines and also those that are joining us by way of MixLR on the Internet. Uh, once again, if there is anyone new joining us, the notes and recordings for all of the previous Bible studies in this series are available online at our website, and that is new-life-ministries.org, and you can find all of those materials there. If you're following in the outline, we have come to page 102, uh, part number 2 of Part 6, Conquering Seven Nations. Let me give a little uh, recap from last week, and then we want to move right along. Seven nations were occupying the promised land. God brought Israel out of Egypt to take them in to the promised land. And after 40 years in the wilderness, they finally came to the promised land and God had been warning them throughout their journey that once they got to the promised land, there were seven nations stronger and mightier than they were. But not to worry, God was going to destroy them and deliver them into the Israelites' hands. And they just needed to be careful not to compromise, not to make any treaties with these enemy nations, but to utterly destroy them. And... We, of course, are looking at this whole picture from the Old Testament as a type and shadow of our spiritual journey. Like the Israelites, we begin in bondage as slaves to sin. Through the blood of the Passover lamb, they came out of Egypt, and through the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, we are truly set free to serve him and to begin this journey out of darkness into marvelous light. Now, we are looking one by one at these seven nations as they represent different evil powers that have to be defeated and destroyed in order for us to fully enter into the abundant life that Christ is calling us into. We looked at the first nation, the Canaanites. They were very important because they're really the root of all the other nations. We saw that the Canaanites represent 
a merchant spirit, the love of money, the love of the world. And Paul told Timothy, that is the root of all evil. And very interesting that five of these seven nations are all direct descendants of Canaan, the Canaanites. So how amazing all these things tie together between the Old Testament history of Israel and the New Testament fulfillment in the life of a Christian. And we've now come to the second of those seven nations, and this one's a big one too, the Amorites. We saw that the Amorites represent pride. The name means prominence, mountaineer, or publicity. They lived in the hill country. They lived in high places. And the Amorites, we saw last time, the only way we can overcome them is by humbling ourselves. And basically, we have one of two choices. We can humble ourselves or wait for God to humble us. And obviously, it's preferable for us to humble ourselves. We saw some examples last time of what happens when an individual or even a nation refuses to humble themselves. God ultimately has to humble them, and it's not pretty. It's very painful, and in some cases, deadly. So we want to really learn from Scripture, what does God mean when he says, humble yourself? And we began looking at this last time, and we're actually looking at seven steps to overcome the Amorite spirit, to overcome pride. And all seven of the steps we're looking at begin with the same two words, humble yourself. And we're just looking at different aspects of that activity. How do we truly begin to humble ourselves in a way that's going to be acceptable and pleasing to God? The first of these seven steps we started with last week, humble yourself, submit to God, and to others. We saw in James and in 1 Peter similar passages, but also distinct and different. And particularly in the passage that's found in 1 Peter, Peter emphasizes not only submitting yourself to God, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, but submitting to others. Submit to your elders, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And really, we can't humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God unless we recognize that God's hand is manifested through those whom God has placed over us. God is a God of order. He's a God of authority. And he likes to distribute that authority to various people, uh, many of whom he places over us for our safety and for our protection. If you're a child, God places parents over you. If you're a wife, 
God places your husband over you. If you're in a church, God places elders over you. If you're living in society, and all of us are, God places government, civil authorities, policemen over us to maintain law and order. And at all of those levels, God gives us opportunities to humble ourselves. And as we saw last time, pride is an illness that's common to all human beings. We all have it. We're all prone to become proud. And so this must be a regular part of our existence, humbling ourselves. Let me go a little further on this first point before we move ahead tonight. In 1 Peter 5, I want to read these verses again. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And then especially verse 6, I want us to examine a little more carefully. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Some years ago, I was praying over this verse and meditating on it, and God began to speak to me and open my eyes to several things. First of all, we're not going to see a giant hand come down out of heaven and we recognize that it's God's mighty hand and we fall down and humble ourselves under that hand. God's hand is used here in a figurative sense to represent his authority over our life manifested in many, many different ways and at many different levels. Basically, God's hand is expressed and manifested in your life through all of the circumstances that you are under, and as I mentioned earlier, through all of those different entities that God has placed over you and given them various measures of authority over your life whether it's your parents if you're a child, your husband if you're a wife, your pastor, your elders if you're a believer in a church, the local police uh, authorities in whatever city or precinct uh, you live in, the state, the federal governing authorities, these are all a part of God's hand over our life. And it's easy for me to very piously say, oh, I am totally submitted to God. I have humbled myself under his mighty hand, and I'm willing to do anything he wants me to do. And yet, I can't humble myself when someone else asks me to do something. I can't humble myself when the pastor 
preaches a message on Sunday, because I know better than he knows. And if I'm a wife, I can't humble myself under the authority of my husband, because after all, I'm more spiritual than he is. I know the Bible better than he does. And these are all examples of deception. And remember, pride is a form of deception. The pride of my heart has deceived me. So if we're going to truly humble ourselves under God's hand, we have to also learn how to humble ourselves before other people. Submit to all of those people whom God has placed over us. For instance, uh, after 41 years of ministry, I could tell you many a story about people who have come and gone, and one of the common denominators that I see in many people who fail to make real progress in their spiritual journey is they come to a place where they cannot submit to those whom God has placed over them. And I'm emphasizing those last few words, whom God has placed over them. And we don't have time tonight, but if you look at Hebrews 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, and other scriptures in the New Testament, it's very clearly stated there that God places people over our lives within the church. He gives them authority. He gives them grace and wisdom to watch over our lives. And when they teach us, when they give us counsel, when they ask us to do something, and we bristle up in pride and say, I'm not going to listen to him. He's just a man. I only listen to the Lord. That's deception. It's just plain deception. And if we can't learn to, as Peter says here, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, and if we can't recognize spiritual authority in the church, those ministries, those offices, those people whom God has appointed to be in those positions, then we're not going to do very well in our spiritual journey. And we'll end up uh, as what I call Christian grasshoppers. We keep jumping from church to church because we don't like this pastor and we don't like that last church that we went to. And we always know better. We're always critical. We're always second-guessing. And we cannot truly humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. You know, I don't claim to be perfect at this, but it it's become more and more of a joy in my life to recognize God's anointing, God's calling, and God's grace in other men and women of God around me and submit to their counsel, their prophetic words, their teaching, their counsel, and yes, maybe even on occasion, their warning. I, I welcome that. I, I, I know that that's healthy for me to be in submission to other members of the body of Christ because none of us is a one-man show. None of us is a lone ranger. And this area of pride, we have to be very, very careful to be on the lookout 
because it can come in 10,000 different forms, and the only way we're going to conquer it is keep humbling ourselves. So, point number one is two parts. Humble yourself by submitting to God and to others. Now, let's move on to the second step. Again, humble yourself. This time, boast in the Lord and not about yourself. Basically, God knows human nature. He knows it better than we know it. And one of the things that seems to be common to all mankind is we're boastful. We like to boast and brag about things, which is actually good. God knew that, and he just teaches us through his word now, once we're saved, once we're born again, once we have the Spirit of God in our lives, how to channel that boasting. And as we mentioned, we now want to learn how to boast in the Lord and not about ourselves. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, we studied already when we looked at the Canaanites, the spirit of the world. But it also shows this connection between the Canaanite spirit and the Amorite spirit, the worldly spirit and the spirit of pride. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 16. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and note this third part, the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. That's what the world is all about. The Canaanite spirit, gives rise to the Amorite spirit, boastful pride of life. Oh, we can go on and on, boasting about how smart we are, boasting about our good looks, boasting about our children, boasting about our education, our job title, boasting about how big a house we own, how many cars we have in the three-car garage, and on and on and on, the boasting goes. And remember, the name Amorite signifies publicity. And this is all about publicizing, promoting ourselves. We boast about everything under the sun, what we have, what we do, who we know, where we've gone, how much money we have, and on and on and on. Well, the Bible is very clear in the New Testament that if you come to Christ, all of that is going to have to change. And the gospel, the very gospel, is so designed that it eliminates all human boasting. And we want to look at a number of important scriptures tonight um, that deal with this very subject. We'll start in Romans chapter 3, where Paul is developing 
the whole message of the gospel with the Romans. He first shows them that all have sinned, there's none righteous, no, not one, and then he begins to uh, lay out for them point by point how Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is our only righteousness. Faith in Christ is our only hope of salvation. All right, let's pick it up in Romans 3 from verse 23 down to verse 27. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. All have sinned, all are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because of his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is justification by faith, plain and simple. No other way to be saved, only by putting your faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. I love those words. Justification by faith, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, eliminates and excludes all of our selfish human boasting. Because we had nothing to do with our salvation. We couldn't save ourselves. God had to do it all for us. It's all by grace. Therefore, boasting is excluded. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. In other words, and Paul expands on this in the rest of Romans, but to summarize it, what he says is, if you and I could do something to save ourselves, fast, pray, lay on a bed of nails, stand on our heads, read the Bible a hundred times, if there was something that we could do to save ourselves or to add to what Christ did on the cross, then yes, we have something to brag about. But the gospel of Christ eliminated all possibility of that because I can't do anything to save myself. I'm hopeless, helpless, totally dependent on God's grace. Therefore, from the very moment I come to Christ, it excludes boasting. Let's move on to another verse. Galatians 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I 
to the world. Paul realized he now had nothing in this world to boast about, not his education, not his religious upbringing, not his possessions, not the people that he knew. He had one thing, and only one thing, that he could boast about, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Ephesians 2. Very familiar verse, but I want you to notice again, it hits on this very point. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So salvation is not from ourselves. It didn't originate from ourselves. We didn't do anything to bring it about. It is a gift, a free gift of God's grace, has nothing to do with any human activity whatsoever. So, here again, it eliminates boasting. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, we have to be careful, and God has dealt with me about this over the years. We have to be careful, even in the way we share our testimonies of how we came to Christ, or other things that he's done in our lives. Human pride likes to creep in there, and we want to take at least a little bit of the credit. In, you know, I used to share my testimony and say, you know, in 1974, I finally came to Christ, but for years before that, I had been looking for God. One day, God really grabbed me and corrected me on that, and said, no, you weren't. You weren't looking for me. And he took me back to Romans 3 and showed me very clearly there, there's no one that seeks God. No, not one. None of us were looking for God. None of us wanted to be holy. We were running after sin, running after the world, running after things to satisfy our own lusts and our own pride. We have nothing, absolutely nothing, to boast about. But now we come to the most important scripture in this list. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. We're not to boast about ourselves, but we must boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, and 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Same thing again. We were weak, foolish, nothings, 
My favorite one on the list is things that are not. We were things that are not. We were nothing. We were zeros. We had nothing at all really going for us. God chose us to nullify all the things in the world that are so that no one may boast before him. But now he continues, verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, we need to turn all of our boasting away from ourselves, who we are, what we know, what we've done, and you can boast all day long about the Lord. Brag about His grace. Boast about His power. Tell people boldly what He's done in your life. That's acceptable, and that's pleasing to the Lord. So, we need to humble ourselves, stop boasting about ourselves, and give God all the credit, give God all the glory. The gospel is so designed to silence and eliminate all of our own boasting, and as you work at this, you become more and more adept at seeing God in everything and giving Him the glory. Acknowledge the Lord in your successes, in your gifts, in your talents, in your ministry. God takes a nothing, and then He makes something out of nothing so that He gets the glory. The letter to the Ephesians, several times, Paul has a very interesting expression there. He says, we are the praise of the glory of God's grace. For the praise of the glory of God's grace. So God's grace working in our lives, bringing salvation, bringing gifts, bringing ministry ability, all of that is to bring praise and glory right back to God. His grace is being praised and glorified through your life, through my life. All right, let's move on to a third step to overcoming the Amorite spirit, overcoming pride. This really gets to the heart of what pride is, and we went through this very carefully at the beginning of this section to define what pride is. If you understand the true nature of pride, then you can really begin to attack it in your life and overcome it. This third point is humble yourself, acknowledge who you really are. Who you really are, nothing. The bottom line is, if we think we're something, we're deceived. And pride is that very deception. Let's go through a couple of these verses again. They will be review, but we now want to look at them from this angle. How do I humble myself? 
by acknowledging what God has already said about who I really am. Okay? Obadiah chapter 1, there's only one chapter, and verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Notice they were living in high places. They said, no one can bring me down from this high place. That's the essence of the Amorite spirit. What is it? The pride of your heart has deceived you. Deception is believing something that's not true. Nobody likes to be deceived. We don't like to be lied to. We don't like to be told by a salesman that if you buy such and such a product, it's going to do such and such, and he's lying to us. You know, our whole culture is just absolutely filled with deception now. I don't know if you heard the latest in the news, but Volkswagen, uh, the number one manufacturer of automobiles in the world, it was discovered this week that over 11 million cars that they have manufactured, they all have software deliberately installed in the car to fool the emissions testing equipment when the cars are tested to see how many miles per gallon they're actually getting. It's a lie. So you buy a Volkswagen, the manufacturer says it's supposed to be getting 40 miles per gallon or whatever, and after you get the car and you start driving it for a few weeks, you find out, no, I'm not getting 40 miles per gallon, I'm only getting 30. Well, the reason for that is the manufacturers lied to you by installing this software on 11 million cars. Imagine that. They lied 11 million times, and of course the head of Volkswagen stepped down today because it's total disgrace for the whole company. But this is just one where they got caught. How many other deceptions are going on in the media, in businesses, and on and on and on it goes. But my point is, nobody likes to be lied to like that. I don't know what they're going to do with all those cars that people bought and they were lied to, they were deceived. That's another matter. But the worst kind of deception is self-deception, and that's what pride is. The pride of our own heart deceives us. Deceives us. Jeremiah said the, the heart is deceitful above all things. It can deceive us. And the only way to overcome that deception is to do what we're talking about here. Humble yourself and acknowledge who you really are. Well, this is my favorite verse in this whole section. Galatians 6 and verse 3 reading from the New American Standard, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, if you analyze that carefully, the deception is 
believing that I'm something when in reality I am nothing. So the reality, the truth of the matter is, I am nothing. And whenever I start to think that I am something, boy, I really, I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm good-looking, I'm a great pastor, boy, I am so spiritual, I know the Bible, and on and on. The minute I think I am something, when in reality I am nothing, I'm deceived. Pride, the, the, the venom of pride has already been injected into my veins. When I start to think I'm something, entertaining thoughts of self-importance. This begins in our minds. It begins in our hearts. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, does that mean we just sit around for the rest of our lives and say, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. I don't know anything. I can't do anything. I'm good for nothing. No, that is not what Paul is trying to say. And let me help you a little bit here. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul says the following, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And here's the, the critical part of this passage I want us to see, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? <clears throat> Let me try to explain this. We're not all the same. He's acknowledging that. He was different from Apollos. He was different from Peter. Each one of them had a different ministry. They had different gifts, callings, graces, etc. That's why the Bible says it's folly to compare ourselves with one another. We're all different. But here's his question. And notice, notice the wording very carefully. It doesn't say what makes you different. It says who. Who makes you different from anyone else? Someone has made you different. Someone has made me different. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? So, in other words, we're starting with zero. We're like a blank slate, a blank computer disk. There's nothing on it. It can't do anything. It's not capable of anything. <clears throat> but then something gets written upon the disk. Something is being added now. What do you have that you did not receive? So we receive grace from God. God gives us gifts. He gives us a variety of talents and abilities and graces. 
And we should acknowledge every one of those graces and use them. Use the gifts that God has given to you. Develop them. Use them to the full extent. But be careful to keep acknowledging that it's not you. It's something you received from God. And therefore, you don't boast in yourself. You boast in God who gave it to you. Notice again, verse 7, who makes you different? Well, it's the Lord. And if the Lord has made you different in some way, give Him glory. If He's given you the gift of prophecy, and you can, you can prophesy to people, and maybe even uh, predict future events, you have discernment, you have words of knowledge, or uh, the, the gift of being able to give a message to the church, do it. Do it with your whole heart. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Develop that gift. Use it to the full extent. But keep remembering, it's not you doing it. It's God. It's God's grace. And as you mature, you'll be able to acknowledge more and more readily, this is not me. This is God. To God be the glory. And Paul asks several interesting questions here. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? In other words, <coughs> if you're boasting, you're actually believing that this is something innately a part of your good nature or your good character. That's a lie. That's deception. It's not a part of your character. It's something you have received. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have received gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have received ministry callings. And we acknowledge that all of that came from God, and therefore, God gets all the glory. And that way, you're able to grow in that grace, you're able to develop that gift more and more, and use it more and more to bless other people, and you don't get all puffed up and bent out of shape with pride. As we've been mentioning throughout this section, the, the tricky part, if I can use that word tricky lightly, the tricky part of all this, God wants to give us gifts, grace, talent. He wants to use every one of us in tremendous ways. But sadly, many people, they get puffed up and they destroy themselves like Lucifer did with pride. The, the trick here is to learn how to flow in God's grace and not get proud about it. And the only way to do that is what Paul is telling them here. Keep acknowledging <clears throat> you did not manufacture this ability. It's a gift that you received from God. All right, let's move on to a couple more scriptures, and we'll finish out with this third step tonight toward victory over pride. 
Humble yourself. Acknowledge who you really are. Nothing. Nothing. A couple of other passages that have really helped me to embrace that truth and to understand what the Bible really says. The next one is found in Psalm 8, and it's also cited in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And when this is cited in Hebrews, very clearly the writer of Hebrews is connecting this with our salvation. When we consider the greatness of God, his awesome power, his wisdom, the, the, the universe that he created, the sun, the moon, the stars, the work of his fingers, when we consider all of that, what is man that he sent Jesus Christ into this world to the cross to save us? And the, the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about such a great salvation. What is man? In other words, we're so small. We're so insignificant. Who are we that God has set his love upon us? And that very thought should enter our minds frequently because it helps keep us humble. Who am I that this great God has loved me with such love. Moving on to the next passage, I would strongly recommend that you read this entire chapter regularly because I find that it just helps, how shall we say, it helps to put us in our place and remind us of just how small we are. You know, it's amazing if we lose sight of these things. We start to get so full of ourselves. We think we're so smart, so great, so important, so powerful. And when you read a passage like this one, it sort of sits you down and reminds you, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm nothing. I'm not really important, am I? Isaiah 40, really the whole chapter but I'm going to read a chunk of it, starting with verse 12, down to verse 25. Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 25. <clears throat> Who has measured the waters, speaking about the oceans of the earth, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens. We now know from uh, the most advanced telescopes and other astronomical instruments that from end to end the heavens are, are so awesomely great that it's hard to even comprehend some of these numbers, but 
millions and millions and millions of light years. One light year is the distance that light would travel, and that's going 186,000 miles per second. Incredible distances. And what does it say? With the breadth of his hand, he can mark off the heavens. Just from his thumb across to his little finger, that's enough to measure the whole expanse of the universe. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Um, I would add, and this isn't specifically stated here, but I think it's implied, uh, where did God go to school? <laughs> where did he learn all this stuff? He didn't have to go to school. No one instructed him in anything. He is wisdom. Who has understood that mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations, the United States included, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Verse 17, Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You know, God made this nation, the United States of America, he made it a great nation. There's no doubt about that. I think everybody in the world acknowledges there was something special about this nation. God blessed this nation with incredible wealth, natural resources, beauty, uh, beyond any description. And yet, this nation has become exceedingly arrogant and proud. And we need to be very careful because pride always comes before a fall. And as great as the United States or any other world power may imagine themselves to be, we would do well to read these verses regularly. Before him, all the nations, all means all, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Many people now 
They believe in a God, but it's a God that they've made in their own image. It's the God that they like, not the God of the Bible, not the God of creation, not the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but some little God that people have invented, and it's convenient for them to worship Him the way they like Him. That's foolishness. What image will you compare Him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rust, or will not rot, sorry. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. You know, if we're tempted to strut around in pride, either as an individual, or or perhaps even as a church, as a ministry, or a nation. We strut around in our self-importance. Look how great we are. Uh, be careful, because he brings princes to nothing. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. God has had to bring down many a great prophet and, bring, and reduce them to nothing. God has reduced many great Christian movements to nothing because they started out well and they became proud and arrogant and inflated with self-importance, and God had to reduce them to nothing. Humble yourself, acknowledge who you really are, nothing. And finally, in James chapter 4, Verses 13 to 16. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Kind of sounds like the way we talk, right? We have all kinds of big plans. Oh yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to buy that, I'm going to make this money, I'm going to start this business, I'm going to have this, I'm going to do this. And James says, oh really? Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while 
and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, and here comes the word again, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. You know, this is very humbling. What James is saying, and it's mentioned in a number of other places in the Bible, all you and I really, all you and I truly are, is a mist. We're a little puff of morning fog, and as soon as the sun comes up, whoosh, we vanish. What is man? Who, who are we strutting around in our self-importance, boasting and bragging? Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm so smart. I'm going to make so much money. No. James says, you better remember who you really are. You're nothing. You're just a little mist. Matter of fact, you don't even know if you have tomorrow. Therefore, when you say these things, say, if it's the Lord's will, and if we live and do this or that. You know, we, we often say, oh, if it's the Lord's will, I'll see you on Friday. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be there next Sunday. But we leave out the next part. Lord willing, and if I'm still alive on Sunday. You know, that part is very important to keep us humble. We don't have control over tomorrow. We don't have control over the hours of life we have left on planet Earth. It's in His hands, and therefore, that keeps me humble. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A number of other metaphors are found in the scriptures. We're like grass. We spring up today, gone tomorrow. We're like a flower, very beautiful in the morning, withered by evening. What is our life? Our life is very frail. It's very temporal. It's very temporary. And therefore, we should keep humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, acknowledging, apart from Him, I have no life. Apart from His grace, I am nothing. I know nothing. I can do nothing. And if I have anything good going on in my life, I better acknowledge very carefully this is God's grace, and it's for His praise. It's for His glory. Let's acknowledge the many graces, the many gifts, the many talents that God has invested in our lives. No two of us are alike. God has made each one of us different and distinct. He wants us to shine. He wants us to be used as vessels in His hands. But be very, very careful to keep humbling yourself, acknowledging this is God. Boast in the Lord and not in yourself. When God does something through you, 
And uh, we all know it's exciting when God uses us. I love it when I find out that God used me, but it's also very humbling. God, you used me, this frame of dust, this little mist that's here today, gone tomorrow. You used me, wow, to God be all the glory. Let's, let's excel in doing this daily. Humble yourself, acknowledge who you really are, you're nothing, and then glorify God for His amazing grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You that You have so designed the gospel of our salvation that there's absolutely no opportunity for us to boast, brag, take credit for anything. From beginning to end, it's all about You. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. You're the author of our salvation. And Lord, You will receive all praise, all honor, and all glory because of the grace that You have deposited in each one of our lives. Lord, help us to be very careful each and every day of our lives to acknowledge who we are, we're nothing, and acknowledge who you are. You are everything. Lord, you have done amazing things in our lives. Let us not for a moment be tempted to boast or brag as if any of it came from us. We received it from you. Gifts of your grace, your kindness, and your love. Gifts that return praise and glory back to you. God, keep each and every one of us humble, walking humbly under your mighty hand, each and every day remembering who we are and who you are. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for each and every one who has joined us here tonight. Lord, you started this great work of salvation and you are faithful and you are able to complete it on that day, and definitely on that final day, you will receive all the glory and all the praise from each and every one of us, because it will not be what we have accomplished. It'll be what you have done. And Lord, we want to keep boasting and bragging about our Father in heaven, bragging about your grace, bragging about all the great things that you've done, and, Lord, boldly telling others, the Lord is my helper. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will be with me to the very end. God, bless each and every one now, and make us a blessing. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.